If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll be happy to get one into your hands. And, of course, if you don't have a Bible, please make that a gift from the Lord today. We want everyone to have a Bible to read and to learn about the great God of the Bible on their own. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Savior this morning. We thank you for this book of Hebrews, the great revelation of Jesus that it is. We pray that you would take our time that we spend here this morning studying these verses We pray that you give us a greater understanding of him and even greater, though it seems impossible to us at times, but give us an even greater appreciation for him, Lord, and an even greater awe at your love and your willingness to send him into this world to make him our Savior. Father, thank you for your love for us today. Thank you for our Savior this morning. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we begin uh, a new series on Sunday morning uh, from the book of Hebrews. And it is a series that I've entitled, Jesus is Better, with the subtitle of Gleanings from the Book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a very, very rich revelation of the person of Jesus. I think that perhaps in all of the Bible, it is second only to the Gospels and only to the book of Revelation in terms of the revelation that it is to us of Christ, the personal revelation of him. I was preparing to go into 1 Corinthians because we had been in First and Second Peter for a while, and then 1 Corinthians is so nuts and bolts practical. And, and so I thought, well, we're going to go in that direction, is uh, seeking the Lord in prayer. And then never could quite settle there and until looking at this book of Hebrews in a process that I won't bore you with and feeling that the Lord wants to direct us into this book. And I just felt like perhaps for myself individually, but then also for us as a fellowship, just, I just want this block of time to be spent just looking at him and growing in our understanding of him and in our relationship with him. And I pray that the Lord will bless it. As the title of the book indicates, this letter was written to Hebrews or to Jewish believers or Christians. And these Jewish Christians had made a profession of faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But now they were being tempted 
by others to go back under the law of Moses in order to try and establish their own righteousness or own right standing before God. They're trying to go back to establish a righteousness on the basis of good works. And these Christians, for them, these Jewish believers that were being tempted back in that direction, uh, there were reasons that the temptation was significant for them. They came out of a very, very rich uh, religious heritage, and much of it still appealed to them, much of it was still attractive to them. The temple was still in existence in the city of Jerusalem with all of its splendor, Herod's temple. All of the sacrifices were still being offered there on a daily basis. All of the feasts, the Feast of Passover and Pentecost, Tabernacles and others were still being practiced on an annual basis, not as a shadow of Christ, not in order to glorify Christ, but as a means to be saved, as a means of works. And then there were for these men and women the man-made traditions of their fathers that were so ingrained in them as Jews. They came to know Christ out of this very strong religious background and that they had been raised in all of their lives. They had very strong memories of all of that. And these traditions of their fathers had been a part of their lives from their infancy. And I don't know what you feel about your childhood or about your teenage years, but I suspect for uh, virtually all of us we look back and realize Those were very, very formative years. And what we experience in those years becomes a very important part of our lives. We have an attachment to the things that were a part of our lives during those years, and those things make a lasting impression upon us. And that's not only true of a good childhood, a blessed, wonderful childhood, It's also true of a childhood that is, you know, way, way, way below all of that, a terrible childhood. And so often you watch children when they become adults and they repeat the sins of their own parents. And it isn't because they don't know better, but there's something way down even below the knowing. There's something in that feeling realm of what happens to us when we're growing up in these environments that we know better than to follow in their footsteps. We can see all of the terrible consequences of following in the footsteps of our parents so often. But somehow, in some kind of weird way, those things provide some kind of a security or some kind of a warmth and a comfort to us. And this happens to people who are the product of a misdirected religious background as well. In adult life, they're willing to overlook very, very glaring flaws in the religion that they are a part of rather than leaving it. And they do so because of the the security and the familiarity that staying in that system 
offers to them on an emotional level. And it's a very, very powerful thing. It's a very real thing. And it can keep people from ever leaving an even erroneous religious system and religious background in order to come to Christ. And even if they do find that they have uh, the uh, to leave that familiarity of a religious history in order to come to Christ and grow in Him, that religious system can always have a little bit of a gravitational pull in, in attempting to pull them back into it. And these Jewish Christians were feeling all of that in spades, in a big, big way in their, in their life. And then, in terms of the appeal of the old system to these Jewish believers, there was the rich heritage of the prophets. There was the association of the fact that they went back generations and generations and generations in the traditions of their fathers all the way back to Abraham and to Moses And then there were all of their friends and their family members calling on them to abandon Christ and to come back to the old ways. And so all of these things were working together in an attempt to pull them back into a works-based religion or salvation. Not on the basis of a biblical theology, but on the basis of emotion or feeling. And they missed some of those old things. They missed some of that that old heritage, and it was very, very hard for them. And again, this same temptation can befall anyone who leaves a work-based religious system that their family has been involved in, perhaps for generations, in order to now become a Christian, to be saved on the basis of grace and begin a personal relationship with God. And some of you know that firsthand. There are people all around this world today that will have to leave a religious system that they grew up in all of their life and has been a part of their family for generations in order to even hear the gospel, the need to be saved and to be forgiven let alone to then respond to that gospel, that offer of salvation from God, and make it their own and enter into everlasting life. The overwhelming majority of people that will be saved today all around this world will not be saved out of sex, drugs, rock and roll. They will not be saved out of secularism or out of paganism. They will be saved out of religious systems that their families have been a part of for generations. And so this thing that the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing about and what these Jewish believers are feeling, it's a very contemporary thing. This world that we live in is a very religious world. It remains a very religious world. And most people will need to leave a false religious system in order to be saved and to come to know Christ, to leave a system of salvation based upon works, being a good person, and I can ultimately earn my way into heaven. And virtually everyone, certainly, who came to know Christ in the early church did so out of a religious background. All the early Christians were Jews. They were all coming out of 
Judaism, and there was nothing wrong with Judaism because Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But what the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the traditions of man had turned Judaism into was the exact opposite of what God intended it to be. They made it into a way of keeping a bunch of laws, 613 of them to be exact, as a means of earning their way into heaven rather than what the law and the prophets were, and that is appointing to a Savior, a Messiah who would be sent into the world through whom we could be saved by putting our faith in Him. And so all of it's very, very contemporary And at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, it was a lot harder for a Jew to become a Christian than it was for a Gentile. (laughs) I have no doubt it was much easier for me as a Gentile to become a Christian than what a typical Jewish person would face in becoming uh, a Christian. I mean, for me, it's just like, okay, he's in a phase now. This is his religious phase. He's been in the peanut butter phase He's been in the Cocoa Krispies phase. He's been whatever phase. My life, a series of phases. And then now he's into this. But there were no real dramatic repercussions or loss of friends and some different things and all. But nothing like what a Jewish person did go through in those days and for many continue to go through in order to become a Christian. For them, they would have been viewed as traitors to their people traitors to the traditions of their fathers, traitors to Moses, traitors to Abraham. And, and so it would mean the loss of relationships. It would mean the loss of very old and established friendships, the loss of employment very often, to be cut off from the family, disinherited from the family, persecution. And all the pressure would be upon them, even as some of you have felt it, you're the one that changed. You're the one that's ruined the whole family. We were all going along just fine until you had to become a Christian and make a mess of the whole thing and bring this strain into the family. And that's what they were feeling. And that's a lot of pressure for a person to feel in, in life. And so that's what was going on around them. And this, and because they were facing this, the Holy Spirit knows they're getting this pressure from this angle. And so the Holy Spirit comes in with an encouragement that is even stronger in the other direction. Through the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit just takes these men and women by the hand and He begins to help them to see that Jesus is better than anything they had to leave in order to come and know Him. And they had paid a great price to come and to know Him. The single great word to me of the book of Hebrews is the word better. It's the key word. And the word better is used in chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 7, verse 7, chapter 7, verse 19, chapter 7, verse 22, chapter 8, verse 6, chapter 9, verse 23, chapter 10, verse 34, chapter 11, verse 16, chapter 11, verse 35, and again in verse 40, and chapter 12, verse 24. In other words, Jesus is better than anything or anyone else, and there is no better revelation of God than the one that's found in Him, and there is no better life than the one that He leads us into. Whatever price we may pay, 
to enter into his kingdom and to walk with him. If you get nothing else out of today or nothing else out of the study of the book of Hebrews, if for the rest of your Christian life every mention of the book of Hebrews brings to your mind that phrase, Jesus is better then we will have been successful on some level in the study of it. And this book of Hebrews brings out the fact that Jesus is better than the prophets. He is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than Aaron. He is a better high priest. He provides a better covenant. And on and on and on it goes. And it's a tremendous book whose teaching is particularly valuable to those coming to Christ out of a Christ-denying religious system, but also to those who are being tempted to leave Christ and return to that kind of a system, or to leave Christ for any reason, for sin, for sex, drugs, rock and roll, for paganism, for secularism, for selfishness. Jesus is better. And if he is better than everything, then he is the best. And to move then from the best is to always take a significant step down. And this is what the writer of the book of Hebrews wants them to know. And we turn to the first point that the writer makes in this vein in verses 1 through 3 where he declares that Jesus is better than or superior to the Old Testament prophets. He said in verse 1, God spoke through the prophets in the past. And this refers to God's Old Testament revelation. Uh, through the prophets, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Malachi, all of the minor prophets, others. And prophets were men that the Holy Spirit used to speak his truth through. And when he's talking about prophets here, you have to understand he's writing to a very religious group of people. Prophets were the heroes of the Old Testament. It's funny, you look at today, the culture that we live in, the the longing for heroes. How many years is it? They've got, uh, there's Superman, then there's Spider-Man, and then there's Spider-Man 16, and then there's Spider-Man 17, and then there's, you know, the Fantastic Four, and then there's all these superheroes. And, of course, people like this kind of stuff because it has an entertainment value to it as well, but it makes you wonder if down deep down inside in the uncertainty of the age in which we live that people are looking for some great hero to put their faith in that could, you know, right the wrongs and the injustices that are all around us and fix all of the problems. I don't doubt it at all. But in the Old Testament, the prophets, they were the heroes of the Old Testament because God gave the greatest revelations of all to the world under the Old Covenant, came into the world through the prophets. He says that these, uh, this speaking by God, it occurred not only through the prophets but at various times. In other words, as was needed through the Old Testament period in different ways. And God spoke in a lot of different ways through laws, through prophecies, through visions, dreams, psalms. Some of them were written. Some of them were oral. And when he talks about the fathers there, 
in verse 1. He's writing to those who would have called the Old Testament prophets their fathers. That he's talking to Jewish believers. But he tells us in verse 2 that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. In other words, the revelation that God has given to us as human beings through his Son is infinitely superior to the revelation that he gave through the prophets. And the revelation that he gave through the prophets was fabulous, amazing. The Old Testament prophets, they spoke periodically under the inspiration of God. But with Jesus, every word and every deed was a revelation of God. Concerning his words, Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Every single thing that he ever did, not just his teaching, a lot of people can speak and not do. Jesus' very life, his deeds, were a revelation of God. We're told that uh, Jesus uh, spoke concerning himself and he said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me, for I always do those things that please him. And so Jesus' representation of God the Father is always perfect. John wrote, and the Apostle John uh, wrote in his gospel, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus said to Philip, he said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus not only speaks for God, but he is God. Now that's better than the prophets. Jesus is better. Jesus' voice is the final word, as the writer tells us here, in all things having to do with God. In other words, Jesus' revelation supersedes all the previous prophets. God's greatest revelation has come through his Son in these last days. And that's why when Peter and James and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus when Jesus was transfigured into his heavenly and his eternal glory. And Peter came up with the not-so-bright idea, speaking on emotion. He said, Jesus, it's good for us to be here. And, and why don't we build three tabernacles right here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Moses represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. And what he was saying was he was putting Jesus on the level of the law and the prophets as a revelation. And the Father booms into the midst of this misguided idea by Peter here that Jesus is just a great lawgiver or a great prophet and a long line of great lawgivers and prophets. At least he didn't believe that, but that's what he was communicating. And the Father steps in and booms from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom, singular, I am well 
pleased. And Jesus continually referred to the Father, God the Father, as Father. He tells us in verse 2, in terms of Jesus having uh, credentials that are... So let me just back up just a little bit. So when he says here concerning Jesus that what Jesus has said supersedes all of the previous prophets and, and, and is the uh, final kind of uh, revelation that has come to us and it has come to us through his Son, the Holy Spirit is declaring here that Jesus is God's last word to the world. Nothing needs to be added to it. So it's a very polite way and a very nice way of saying hundreds of years before these other people would pop up on the scene. But it's the writer of the book of Hebrews' way of saying, forget about Muhammad. Forget about Joseph Smith. Forget about all of the prophets that will come after Jesus and claim to possess a greater revelation of God than the one that Jesus brought. They cannot and they do not. They are way too late. And we notice too in verse, uh, latter part of verse 2 and then in verse 3 that Jesus has credentials that no prophet could ever claim. He is, verse 2, God's son. So the prophets, they were great men, but they were merely men. Jesus is the son of God. It is water baptism, the father spoke there at that scene, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then whom, in terms of his credentials, we're told in verse 2, whom he, that is God the Father, has appointed the heir of all things. All of creation, all of the heavens, all of the earth, they belong to him and, and will be under his reign. The prophets were great men, but they could never be said of them. Further in verse 2, we're told that through him, Jesus, he made the worlds. And so the heavens and the earth, everything in them, physical, spiritual, made by Jesus. John chapter, gospel chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, For by Him, Jesus, all things were created that are, are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. He spoke the worlds into existence. He was the active agent in creation. That could never be said of a prophet, no matter how great a prophet might be. In the Old Testament, it made Jesus as makes him unique in human history. We're told in verse 3, related to his credentials, that he is the brightness of God's glory. And when we look at Jesus in the Scriptures, we see the brightness of the glory of God. We get to see how beautiful God is, how glorious God is. In verse 3, we're told that Jesus is the express image of his person, of God the Father. He is an exact reflection of God the Father. Again, Jesus speaking to Philip uh, on the night before the cross. Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Translation, if you want to know what God the Father is like, look at me. You've been seeing it for three and a half years, Philip. To see me, to listen to me, 
is to see and to know what the Father is like. And then we're told in verse 3 that Jesus upholds all uh, things by the word of his power. He holds it all together. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17, And he that is Jesus is before all things, and in him all things consist. They're all held together by him. If he didn't hold it together, our individual bodies and the whole universe would just explode in a great explosion. That could never be said. As wonderful as the Old Testament prophets were, we give them the utmost respect. They They are the heroes of the Old Testament, but none of them can make these claims. And then we're told in verse 3, concerning Jesus and the uniqueness of his qualifications is that he purged our sins. He provided us with the cleansing of sins. And here is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, willing to come into the world to die on the cross for our sins, to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And no prophet could do that, and no prophet did that, And then notice in verse 3, who after purging our sins has sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He sits this morning at the right hand of God the Father as our great king and as our high priest. And his ascension into heaven after his life of 33 and a half years All of his doing, all of his speaking, all of his saying, that ascension into heaven was heaven's way, the Father's way of saying amen to the life of Jesus. Amen to all of his doing, to all of his saying. And the word amen means so be it, that's the truth. The ascension wasn't just God saying, listen, I can have some spinach and flex my big strong right arm like Popeye and I can cause Jesus to ascend in heaven. It's filled with implication. God was communicating something to mankind and to us. And that is that it was an amen to his life, an amen to his his message. The fact that Jesus is seated in heaven right now is significant. He's not up there pacing. We're a wreck down here, some of us. God's not a wreck at all as he watches what's going on. He may not be very pleased with it, but Jesus sits in heaven. The fascinating thing about that is that under the Old Testament, Old Covenant in the Old Testament is the high priest never sat He would go into the Holy of Holies. He would offer sacrifices. He would do all of these things that he would do. And there was no place for him to sit down. He was always working all of the time, always on his feet. He never sat down. And what God was communicating through that establishment of that high priest in that way was to communicate to us that we will never find rest in the law of Moses. Even the high priest could not find rest in the law of Moses. He could never sit down and say, that's it, having performed this ritual or been in obedience to this particular commandment, I have fulfilled all of it, I can sit down and rest now. They could never do that. And the reason was... The reason that the priest, high priest 
And the Old Testament could not sit down, but Jesus could sit down, is that Jesus came in and he did what he did as a high priest. And the salvation that he has offered us is a finished salvation. It cannot be approved upon. You can't go back into an old religious system and say, all right, I put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, and now, you know, I want to hedge my bet a little bit by being okay on the basis of works. There's no need for that. And there's certainly no peace in that because you never know how many good works you're going to need to do in order to be approved by God if salvation was on the basis of works. So all it would turn human beings into is just great nervous wrecks spiritually on top of the nervous wrecks that we are on the world on the level of everyone else in the world. And so Jesus comes, he finishes his work, and he sits down because he has provided us with a finished salvation. It is finished, he cried out, on the cross. And no prophet, no, as great as all of them were in the Old Testament, could ever declare that concerning themselves. No mere prophet could do it. And this is why it's a absolute silliness. I want to be generous. Just silliness to put Jesus into the mere prophet category as so many people do. And it might be you here this morning. We say, I'm willing to accept him as a great man, as a great spokesman for God, a great prophet, a great example in human history. But I will not accept him as the creator of the heavens and the earth. I will not accept him as the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. I will not accept him as the Son of God, as being divine. And to be unwilling to accept that understanding of Jesus reveals, as the writer tells us here, a complete misunderstanding of Jesus and a very, very grave ignorance concerning Jesus. Someone might say, why would the Holy Spirit bother to spend so much time at the onset of this letter declaring a proposition that seems so obvious to any student of the Bible, and that is that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is better than any prophet. It seems like a complete waste of time. But look at the world around you, at how many billions of people all around this world are in complete bondage this morning and living in absolute darkness spiritually because they have elevated the teaching of some so-called prophet above the teaching and above the revelation of Jesus. So the things that we think are so simple and so obvious, when God looks at the world, they're not so obvious to everyone in the world. And so he takes the time to make the point. You look at Islam today. How many people live in the darkness, the satanic darkness of that religious system? I don't say anything about the individuals. I speak to the system. I speak concerning the prophet out of which that system came forth. 
and you look at the comparative darkness. I mean, it's unfair to even say comparative darkness. It's a, it, you can't even put into words the difference between the life of a simple follower of Jesus Christ in this world and one who follows that religious system. But it's not just them. You look at false prophets in Mormonism. You look at false prophets in Jehovah Witnesses and so many other different religious systems and false prophets that have produced these religions of Buddhism and Hinduism and all of these different things. And you look at the vast gulf that exists between the quality of life that is found in that relationship with Christ versus the one that they're experiencing on a daily basis. And just a simple taking heed to what the writer of the book of Hebrews has said in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, would free everyone from the deception that they're in. Until a person can show up with greater qualifications, show up in human history with greater qualifications than Jesus, they shouldn't get our ear. And only Jesus possesses the qualifications that he possesses. No one can match his credentials. And so in essence, the Holy Spirit tells us that if someone were to approach one of these Hebrew believers and ask them why they weren't afraid to leave behind such a rich prophetic history of their fathers, that they could reply in response to that, no, I appreciate all of those prophets of my fathers, but I have gained more than a prophet in coming to Christ. And I feel that I have honored their prophetic ministry in the highest way that I can by believing in the one that they were all pointing me to. And I have a sense they would be pleased that I have come to know Christ. And it would be true to respond in that way. And that is what the Holy Spirit is telling us can be and should be our response to any such temptation to pull back from following after Christ into something infinitely inferior, even though the pull emotionally can be so strong. And so that's our Savior, the beginning of the description here this morning. Jesus is better in every way. This is the greatest life a person can live, the one that we're living. And we never leave anything in this world for Jesus and ever take a loss. It never happens, including when we are forced to leave a religious system in order to come to know him. And so on the one hand, you have this book of Hebrews. It's an exhortation and a warning against leaving the substance of Christ for the shadows of the Old Testament. But on the other hand, it's an absolute celebration of the greatness of our Savior, the beauty of our Savior, who he is and what he is and the privilege that is ours to know him and to walk with him. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Father, we thank you this morning for our Savior. We thank you for the uniqueness of his credentials. And Lord, we are humbled by the fact that one who possessed such credentials as he did would be willing to come into this world and pay the price that needed to be paid for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we just celebrate Jesus this morning. We thank you for him. And we thank you, Lord, that for those of us who have known you for a while, that we know not only from your word that Jesus is better than anything and everything that both the religious and secular world can offer us, but, Lord, we know it by experience. We say thank you this morning for the life that you have saved us into. Thank you for this relationship. Thank you for the price that was paid to make it available to us. Thank you for our Savior this morning, Father. And we give you thanks in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have not yet at some point in your life put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible says, For God so loved the world, that includes you, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe or trust in him, there's no works, that's all it is. He just wants you to trust. Whosoever would believe in him, in Jesus, should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is a free gift because if it wasn't a free gift, we could never rest in it. We could never be sure of it. It is a sure salvation because it is a finished salvation.